So, you know, whether it's a mental health related call or it's an alcohol or drug related call, you know, they're there with campus safety, um, able to, you know, address the non kind of policy enforcement parts of what happens oftentimes in these kinds of situations. So we've created this team approach that includes campus safety, counseling, student life on call, each leveraging the strengths and talents that they have. And going back to what I was saying before, it's about having the right people on the team and establishing a shared approach that ends up being, I think, a more successful way of managing these everyday kinds of challenges that we face. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, we're talking about reimagining the crisis response and on-call structures. We'll be discussing challenges, new models, and possible innovations to serve student needs better and create systems that are sustainable for staff as well. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. This episode is sponsored by Leadership. Go to leadership.org to learn how they can work with you to create a just, caring, and thriving world. This episode is brought to you by Stylus as well. Visit styluspub.com and use promo code SANOW for 30% off and free shipping. Today, we're sharing the second of three conversations in a series I hosted for the University of Massachusetts Amherst Residential Life Team. The series focused on reimagining residents' life work, crisis response and on-call, and social justice from a proactive perspective. I invited some of the most innovative thinkers and practitioners I know to share their thoughts, ideas, and approaches to generate possibilities for us all to consider. Each conversation we, each conversation we share with you in this series was followed by a question and answer session specific to the UMass residential life context. Thanks to UMass Residential Life for making these conversations possible and for allowing us to share them more broadly with you here. And I'd love to have our three guests introduce themselves. And Steve, I think we're going to start with you. All right. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is doing well. Um, my name is Steve Herndon. My pronouns are he, him, his. I am the Assistant Vice President for Student Development and Executive Director of Housing and Residence Life at the University of Dayton. I have been at the University of Dayton 19 years. It'll be... 20 in July. Um, this was supposed to be a two-year experience, um, and yet, yet here I am. Um, I am a member of the Dean of Students office as well, so my, my, I'm a part of the Dean of Students staff here at UD. Uh, we are a highly residential institution, so 80% of our uh, students across four years live in our housing, and um, so Housing and Residence Life, as well as the other offices that report to our Dean of Students, have a very intimate relationship with our students, given the highly residential nature of our institution. I will stop there because I could go on forever, but I won't. Um, mm -hmm. That gives you a little bit of context, not only about my role, but also um, how I, the, the environment in which all of that materializes. I will also say I'm also the acting Dean of Students this week as my supervisor's out of the office on business travel. So that has been quite an adventure and um, definitely a great learning experience. Well, thank you for being with us, Steve. Uh, Kate, let's hear from you. Thanks, Keith. Um, 
My name is Kate Byer. I use she, her pronouns. I'm the executive director for residential life at New York University. Um, and I have worked in various roles here since 2003. And so like Steve, <laughs> I thought it was going to be a two, two to five year gig. And I have never left. Mm-hmm. My um, entire professional career has been in, in residence life. And prior to coming to NYU, I worked in Stony Brook on Long Island and at Ball State in Indiana. Um, at NYU, we house about 11,500 students. Um, most of our first year students are on campus. And then we um, see about half of our students study away at, at one of our global sites and then have a decreasing percentage of students who remain on campus throughout their four years here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Happy to be here. Happy to see so many. Well, not right now because your cameras are <laughs> off. But before your cameras are off, happy to see some familiar faces. That's wonderful. Thank you for being with us, Kate. And Victor, tell us a little bit more about you. Oh, well, great to be with you all. Uh, Victor Arcelis, uh, he, him, his pronouns. I'm the Dean of Students uh, at Connecticut College. It's a small liberal arts college, roughly about 1,900 um, students in southeastern Connecticut. Um, it's my 10th year at Khan. Uh, before that, I was at Gettysburg College and then at Bucknell University before that. Um, in my current role, I'm responsible for overseeing everything, student, <laughs> <laughs> overseeing uh, uh, residence life, student engagement, new student programs, orientation, uh, student health services, student counseling services, student well-being and health promotion, athletics, uh, campus safety and student conduct. Yeah, Victor's one of those people that if you don't know where it should report, you just have it report to him. That's how that works out. <laughs> it's been a great uh, experience at Con. Yeah, well, and thanks all of you for 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 joining us. And uh, we invited each of you because um, we've known that you have been innovating uh, and thinking about really different ways of doing crisis response, breaking free of sort of what we all did uh, as on call and the models that we've had to really reimagining this in different ways. And you are doing this in different ways, but you've also thought about it in different ways. And we want to benefit not just what you're doing, but what are also all of the other ways that you thought about it or other models that you've seen um, as you've explored and began thinking about this. So we're going to try and generate some possibilities and help us break free from what we know. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, generate some possibilities that then we can explore and decide what we may want to implement. Uh, Victor, I want, I want to begin with you. Um, we were on an email thread about six months ago with some other colleagues thinking about this, and you really said, we're doing this really differently, and you had a lot of energy for it. So tell us what it is that you're doing, and what's worked, and what's not. Sure. I, mean, I think just as a starting point, you know, I was reflecting on this topic, you know, it's hard to not address the fact that you know, when I came into this field, I never thought that I would be responsible for leading a campus um, through a protracted multi-year pandemic crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as you think about crisis response, thinking about it through the context of this unique experience, um, I think is, is, is helpful. You know, a, a crisis response structure is supposed to be about shared responsibility. Um, and when the crisis happens, there's a tendency sometimes to default to a limited number of people um, bearing most of the responsibility. And it's critical to have the right people on the team um, and to be really intentional um, about having a shared approach to leading through that crisis. 
Um, so this was particularly important in this kind of protracted long-term crisis that we were dealing with with the pandemic. But I want to apply that kind of way of thinking to um, a different set of circumstances that have to do with more of kind of our everyday um, type of, of, um, of uh, managing crisis. Um, so specifically as it relates to on-call and evening kind of work um, that's done with, with campus safety, you know, in the past, you know, the everyday type of crises that emerge in students' lives, you know, during the day, you know, it's an all hands on deck kind of approach. There's lots of people able to mobilize to address the situation. Um, but we are 24-7 types of places. Uh, you know, at Khan, we have 1,900 students. They're all living on campus and things happen as they do in all your other campuses um, in at all hours of the day and night. Um, and after five, the team trunk down to campus safety, student life on call, um, and the counselor on call, who was available, but available on the phone, not necessarily in person. Um, and what we found is that we didn't have a broad enough team skill set addressing the situations that we had um, you know, before us. Um, so campus safety or the on-call structure, uh, on -call structure were needing to reply um, you know, respond to, you know, addressing to issues that relied on skills that were not necessarily their primary talents. Um, and, you know, given the many responsibilities that these folks have, uh, were also, it was also stretching, you know, the, the, they didn't have the bandwidth um, to manage it. So they didn't have the sufficient time in a particular moment mm -hmm. um, to be dedicated to whatever the sensitive matter was that they were dealing with. Um, which sometimes led to, you know, relatively small problem becoming a much, much bigger problem and sometimes transferring into an actual crisis. Um, so what we did is we created a new position. Um, and I think what's noteworthy is in our current, you know, financial um, circumstances in higher ed, you know, it's not easy to create new positions like brand, brand new positions. So we actually did is we converted two campus safety positions um, into what we call now student support specialists. Um, these are folks that work from 4 p.m. to 2 a.m. Um, their background is in counseling and social work. Um, they're part of our care team, so our behavioral intervention team. Um, they are meeting with students who are referred to them, you know, through care and all kinds of other avenues, through RAs, et cetera. Um, you know, students reach out to them directly uh, and they're going to calls with campus safety. So you know, whether it's a mental health related call or it's an alcohol or drug related call, you know, they're there with campus safety, um, able to, you know, address the non kind of policy enforcement parts of what happens oftentimes in these kinds of situations. So we've created this team approach that includes campus safety, counseling, student life on call, each leveraging the strengths and talents that they have. And going back to what I was saying before, it's about having the right people on the team and establishing a shared approach that ends up being, I think, a more successful way of managing these everyday kinds of challenges that we face. So I think that now we're doing a better job of intervening early um, before something becomes a crisis um, and giving students access to talk to trained professionals during the moments of difficulty, um, which isn't necessarily during, during business hours. Um, so I think that over the course of the two years that we've been implementing this approach for a year and a half, I should say, I feel like we've, you know, averted a variety of different, you know, crises as a result. 
we're serving students better um, and uh, just more effective in our overall work that we're doing uh, to provide a you know vibrant and healthy you know residential experience. Mm -hmm. Thanks for kicking us off with that. I just have a quick clarifying question. So these folks, um, they don't both serve at the same time, right? They're they're switching. And did they are they in addition to the same Res Life Security Student Life on call, or did they sort of sub in and reduce some of that? So they don't work at the same time. They do overlap. Um, mm -hmm. one day a week um, in order for them to connect right. together and to talk about their work as as, as a team. Uh, but that's with two people, we kind of cover a full week's worth of, of hours of, of coverage. And it is in addition to still having our on-call. It's funny, we were having a meeting today with our on-call team as we're doing a variety of different reorganizations in that. And a benefit to the on-call team is that there are a variety of calls that they're not, now not getting because the student support specialists are able to handle, um, you know, calls that on call was going to before. So it's relieved some of the pressure that they've had as well. So it's improved that experience, which I know is something that in higher ed, we're all trying to figure out how to grapple with. So you maybe have the same student life folks on call, but they don't have to go to every on call issue because, okay, so-and-so is going to go there. I don't have Correct. to be there as well. And Okay. Interesting. Great. Well, thanks for that very concrete example, and we'll come back later, some of the lessons learned and some other, uh, other ideas. But I want to move to Kate. You're also doing some innovative things there at NYU, and I want to hear a little bit from you, very similar to what Victor shared, kind of how did you get there? <laughs> what are you doing, and how's it working? Yeah, so our, our new approach, similar to um, a position that Victor described, is to sort of shift who is responding to crisis uh, especially after hours critical incidents. So before um, 2021, similar to many campuses, um, certainly similar to my campus, undergraduate campus, mm -hmm. when I was an RA, student residence assistants were often the first line of folks to respond to most crisis or critical incidents. Um, our setup is that we have uh, campus safety officers in every residence hall. And so if a student needs to enact after hours uh, support, or um, we become aware of a situation through any sundry of, of means, um, the campus safety officer is often the person who enacts the, the, the duty staff. And prior to this new model, that call was going to resident assistance. Mm -hmm. And so around 2017, we noticed a shift or um, a shift became clarified for us that RAs were, um, it was an interesting gap. RAs were consistently reporting satisfaction with the position and our training outcomes were met. And also they were telling us that they felt underprepared to respond to critical incidents and really expressed that the position was causing them stress and creating distress for them. And so many um, critical incidents had two layers. It was the student who was experiencing the incident. And then there was um, distress that was felt by the student RA who was responding to the incident and felt perhaps ill-equipped to do so. Mm -hmm. And so um, we convened a group to look at this and, and really recognize that student needs have changed. Um, and certainly, certainly at our campus and on other campus, there have been entire university structures that have been stood up in response to mental health and well-being needs, but the RA role had remained largely unchanged. Um, 
many of the duties that we were asking of RAs were exactly the same as the duties that I um, I accepted when I took the RA role, you know, 25 years ago. And so we uh, took the step to really recenter the RA position to primarily focus on community development, peer mentoring, and resourcing. And so in that, um, introduced an 11 member incident response team that would um, be on, on, be at work, their work day, similar to the position Victor described is uh, 5 p.m. to 3 a.m. We came to ours by looking at when incidents happen and when we wanted these folks to be on campus. We have between four and six incident response team members working every night at four hubs spread, spread around campus. And so our, our campus, mm -hmm. as it is, our residence halls are um, spread throughout lower Manhattan and Brooklyn. And so we have um, a considerable territory that we have to sort of cover. And so we place the incident response team at um, hub offices that allow them to be within 20 minutes of any any residence hall in their hub. And so mm -hmm. with the exception of lockout calls, because it always comes back to lockouts mm -hmm. that go to the RAs, all calls um, that would have previously been routed to the RAs are directed to the incident response team. And they go on site and respond to critical incidents such as mental health concerns, medical transports, escalated roommate conflicts. And then they work closely with our counseling and wellness services on-call staff. So we have a staff member who is on-call from um, counseling and wellness services, as well as our campus safety officers um, throughout the night. We've also established communication processes so that um, situations that maybe start at night or start during the day are handed off to our overnight daytime mm -hmm. um, staff. So the residence hall directors and the residence hall assistant directors um, we work closely with our student health center and, and other members of the IRT team who maybe are not working one night, but will be working the next night so that we have some continuity of response between um, the daytime and nighttime teams and also from one day to the next day. Um, and so we've seen a similar impact on the, the residence hall staff who are on call. We maintain a, an on-call structure. Every night we have three members of our residence hall staff on call, and then an administrative layer of on-call staff also that's available. Um, they have received, uh, they have seen a, a huge decrease in the amount of calls they get mm. um, during the day and is offsetted then when the IT, IRT is not um, working after 3 a.m. or during the day on the weekends, calls will go to the hall staff. And so there's been some shift they're in responsibilities, but mm -hmm. considering the, the huge decrease of uh, calls they are not getting because the IRT, a layer professional staff, are handling um, critical incidents, our duty staff isn't receiving calls from the RAs. And so there has been um, sort of a actual more positive exchange of, of that work time. Mm -hmm. And um, Students are being that the service to students undergoing crisis or in crisis situations that is enhanced because of professional staff responding to that who are linked to mm -hmm. our other supports of staff and, and really professionalizing this layer of response has uh, served both the students 
and in general, as well as our residential resident assistant population who no longer are, are feeling pressured by that responsibility. What are the credentials or the criteria or the skill sets that those IRT folks that, you, that they're bringing? So we we're we're seeing that we're, we're drawing from a lot of different areas. Mm. Um, currently on the team, we have folks who um, have worked for our department in other capacities before. Mm. Um, a former RA just started on the team. We mm -hmm. have people who um, have counseling backgrounds and would have done some um, counseling or counseling adjacent work. Um, folks who worked in trauma centers or with um, um, people who, that were experiencing homelessness or were um, in recovery. So it really draws, I think a commonality is that it's, it's folks who tend to have, uh, like I said, a counseling, counseling adjacent background, social work, um, or, or some sort of interaction with a helping profession in the past. Um, mm -hmm. Usually um, it's, a, it's a position that draws uh, folks who have a bachelor's degree, some years of experience and experience with um, a level of crisis response mm -hmm. so that there is comfort um, because the entire time they are at work, they are waiting for the phone call so they can go to response to a critical right. incident. Right. I find it really interesting that you're you're so broad in who you're willing to consider for this. And I guess I'm imagining that over time, you'll sort of find maybe we shouldn't be that broad and this tends to work better and this tends to work better. And, and it seems like the most important criteria is people who are comfortable in responding to these things and yeah. just don't escalate or feel comfortable and have seen things and feel like I can be there for the students in this. Yeah, so I mean, it's year two, and we, um, when we initially were interviewing folks, really talked about sort of, and, and we're honest about this notion that this is a startup, it's a new way that we are doing mm -hmm. things are going to be hiccups, but I have been really impressed with, um, with the team, um, mm -hmm. very happy with the folks that came into the position, because let's face it, we were a little, we were curious about the types of folks who would work from 5 p.m. to 3 a.m. Like, <laughs> I think that that also is a, mm -hmm. a particular kind of bend. Mm -hmm. um, and so very happy with the team and, and just their kind of fluidity and flexibility and um, motivation to take something that was brand new and really make something of it, yeah. as well as their complete focus on um, supporting students. That's wonderful. Wonderful. What a, what a great model. And again, we're going to hear a little bit more about lessons learned and what would you do differently and, and what do you wish you could do that you can't do various limitations. But um, Steve, tell us a little bit about what you're what you're thinking about and what you're doing and what you see ahead there at Dayton. All right. Thank you. Um, I would say for, you know, listening to Victor and Kate, there's there's lots of ways I can rent <laughs> my experience strongly resonates with theirs um, in terms of this is a journey. And I think some of it, I think, and I know we'll get to lessons learned and challenges mm -hmm. later. I think some of this, but one of the, the challenges that we're facing is having to unlearn how we were conditioned to approach and actualize our work. As we seek recognizing out of necessity, we need to create a more sustainable future for our staffs, um, for learning to be at the center of the work. We have to be able to keep, we have to, Crisis is a, is, a, is a component of the work, but it can't be the, the, the center or the context by how we 
um, approach our work. I think for us, it started with, are we working from the same understanding or definition of crisis? Do we have the, do we, what is, how is crisis being defined and does it need to be redefined in a way that allows for us to, to think about the different roles that are, that play a, that play a part in crisis response? Um, and then how do we right-size expectations from there? And I think over time, particularly here at UD, I think just discomfort was was treated as, as a crisis. And so being able to have some understanding that part of the learning experience, part of living with one another, mm -hmm. there's going to be moments of discomfort. That's not good or bad, right or wrong, that just is. And so really us coming to a collective understanding of is everything that create that is everything that we're defining as crisis really crisis? Mm -hmm. Or um, are we just, crisis becomes a, a, a significant sort of catch-all for everything that's making us uncomfortable. So we had to start there by redefining the term mm -hmm. to make sure that we were working from a collective um, understanding of the, the concept. Um, I think for us, as it pertains to our undergraduate staff, when Kate was talking about staff, undergraduate staff really feeling like their jobs was creating stress for them, we were experiencing the same thing here. And, and I think as we looked at um, how we might be contributing to that, one of the places we started was training. Mm -hmm. And um, as we look at our training schedule, the time that we're spending, are we training over the course of the experience or are we trying to inundate staff with all that they need to know over the course of a very complex experience in two weeks? And in so then August. how do, in August, right? And so how do we scaffold training in a way and, and so that it's an ongoing journey and not a journey that starts and ends in um, August. So that took working with campus partners and helping to right size expectations, but also to some degree, decreasing some of their presence mm -hmm. um, because some, some topics or messages are better said or addressed at later points in the experience, mm -hmm. what we need to realize is that we were spending very little time focusing on what is the vision for our department? What is the purpose of our work? What is the purpose of the role? And mm -hmm. the role is really to build community. And, and so that as we focus on some of the foundational pieces to the experience, then when we introduce some of the, the aspects of the experience that can create some discomfort like crisis, there's a context that's already been set so that the staff are not afraid of their, their positions, afraid of their roles as students are being welcomed. We were doing a lot of let's give, let's introduce them to all the various campus partners that are gonna deliver important content, but content that to someone who is new and still figuring their way through the position is gonna be a, a overwhelming and intimidating. Mm -hmm. And so we had to re reconceptualize training and recognize that it has to be an ongoing process and not a two week um, experience that happens in August. I think also right-sizing um, who should be in serving in which rotations and roles and where do we draw parameters and boundaries around that so that um, the, the credentialed folks are, are responding to the, um, the people with the correct credentials are responding to uh, uh, the, the crisis to which they should be responding. And so the Dean of Students staff uh, being a part of that, uh, being the Dean of Students Administrator on call rotation. Mm -hmm. So we're responding to a crisis that has significant implications for the institution on behalf of the Dean of Students. And then some of the more residence life related um, crisis that our full-time master's level professionals are responding to that with a graduate assistant as an, as an assistant. And we still have staff, paraprofessional staff on duty in the, in the halls, but they really should be focusing on very specific things and not focusing on um, 
anything that could constitute a crisis or something that they're not credentialed to respond mm -hmm. to. It's also required us working with campus partners, particularly our counseling center staff that even for our full-time master's level professionals, what is their role and responsibility in responding to self-harm or any attempt or, or suicide attempts? Who needs to take the lead? What, who needs to focus on which aspects of this, um, of this incident? Um, who, who, who's focusing on what? Mm -hmm. And um, so it, it's been a lot of conversation, a, a, a lot of recognition that we were operating on a lot of assumptions about one another, one another's work, role, contributions, all of that. And now beginning to sit down and do the work to right size expectations, roles, training, all of what's gonna be critical um, for, um, for us to be responsible and judicious in how we uh, mm -hmm. support students in, in crisis. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, how we preserve our staff. We're now talking about the impact of trauma. How does trauma mm -hmm. impact our staff? Recognizing our staff are not here just to execute a, a role or work, but the work that they are responding to, the situations that, to which they are responding also has a direct impact on them. And so are we as focused on recognizing the impact of trauma and prioritizing recovery as part of the work, both individually and collectively where, where needed? Is that, how is that captured in our protocols or is it captured? It wasn't before, but how do we now include that within the protocol so that anyone reading the protocol recognizes uh, um, that recovery is a key component, um, both for the folks directly impacted by the crisis, but also for, for others um, who mm -hmm. played some role in it as well. Could you give us an example about how you might include that in the protocol, this recovery piece? Well, I think some of it is for us um, providing some reflective questions, directions around like once the incident has been managed, can we provide some reflective questions about not just what the what what someone may have learned, but how did this impact you? Mm -hmm. And what do you need in terms, what does support look like for you? And from whom do you need that support? Mm -hmm. Is that your supervisor? Is that other leadership in the department? Is um is that the dean of student staff? Mm -hmm. And then so that as we think about how uh, the needs of our, our staff at whichever level, we're able to marshal our resources effectively and deploy them um, effectively as well. Because I sit as a member of the Dean of Student Staff. I'm also someone's employer. So they may mm -hmm. not feel comfortable or safe speaking with me. They may say, Steve is a great person, very wonderful to be around. We love Steve, but I don't know, but Steve is also my supervisor or Steve is also the assistant vice president and I'm several you know, le levels right. away from Steve. I mean, my supervisor, supervisor, supervisor. Right, and so um, recognizing the role that power plays in this and who is the best messenger and yeah. uh, person best equipped to provide the support needed for that individual and then collectively for staff as we think about how circumstances are impacting mm -hmm. uh, larger groups of people. But it's being well, more direct and more forthright in, in capturing within the protocol. It doesn't end at the time uh, that the incident has been managed. There's still right. a residual effect that we have to address as we think about the role of the staff and the impact it's having on them. Yeah, and really building that in as part of the protocol, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. after the protocol in addition. Right. And, and, and we hope you will take care of this on your own, but making it part of, of mm -hmm. the process. Um, I appreciate all three of you sharing. I'm hearing uh, from Victor, let's make sure that the there's a match of skills, right? We were, we were asking things of people that they didn't have the skills for and time, right? We're asking too much of people they didn't have the time. Um, 
but also I appreciate Kate sharing this. Uh, let's be mindful of the students in crisis and tending to that, but also not causing distress in our staff. And when that does happen, how do we tend to that recovery and opening that up? And in various different ways, you're all talking about um, shift work is, is how I think about it. And I think so often we've just had, I mean, my whole career, it's been work nine to five, but not really eight to 630 mm -hmm. and then be on call. And, uh, and, and other places don't do that. Right, they don't have you do the job and then be on call. When you're on call, you're on call. That's the thing that you're doing, and then that means you get this time. Or you know, I'm, I'm thinking about nurses. I'm thinking about crisis, mental health crisis. I'm thinking about um, hospitals. I'm thinking about so many other places where you don't do the job and then just slap on call and particularly crisis management. In addition to that, it's it's incorporated in part of it. Um, you're also having me think about. Um, all three of you have talked about um, breaking apart what was once a one-size-fits-all role into, you know, you do this and you do this and you do this. And I think you, we're talking particularly here about professional staff, but I'm also hearing others talk about doing that with the RA role. I'm thinking about Clemson in particular that is has a whole bunch of RAs, but they're breaking apart and they're going to have community builders and they're going to have desk and operations and then they're going to have on-call and policy and their idea is we can hire people who really want to and are good at this part and just do that. And we can hire people who are really good and want to do this part and be really good at that rather than saying, you're an RA, you do everything. Mm -hmm. And then there's all sorts of um, poor fits for that, um, capacity issues, overwhelm and things like that. Or people turning down 70% of the job that they would love and really thrive at because this 30% is intolerable. So how do we mm -hmm. separate some of that out? And your points about training is one I keep coming back to often. Um, why do we train people in August for nine months of a job? <laughs> why don't we train people for the next month or two and then ongoing ways of developing that along the way? I want to shift us to uh, lessons learned. We're going to stick with you, Steve. What What have you learned so far, what do you wish you would have known at the beginning of the process? And, and where has this taken you in unexpected directions? Wow. <laughs> um, I, I would say some of the lessons learned is as close as we've worked to get, as close as we've worked with one another, um, how we define concepts, the assumptions that we, we've made a lot of assumptions also about each other and mm -hmm. what what this office should do versus what this office does versus what this other office may may do. And so it's in some ways, I think the lesson learned for me is that we've made a lot of critical decisions, I believe, about structure and infrastructure based on assumptions. And mm -hmm. so in some ways is we've had to pause and, and it's in some ways uh, reorient ourselves has given us an opportunity to have better clarity, both mm -hmm. about our own contributions and what we should be contributing to this overall, to the overall experience, but I think also what others are contributing. And so as we build these partnerships and design models and protocols and start to build out that infrastructure, we can do so now in a more informed fashion. Mm -hmm. um, I think we also got out of the, uh, the lesson learned that it's, it can be very easy to get in this space where we're trying to one-up each other over who's more um, put upon mm -hmm. uh, than, than the, the other. So you tell me that your team 
is uh, has been managed, hasn't slept all week. Well, I haven't slept for two weeks. So we're just trying to, you know, one, one up each other over who's more tired, who's more put upon, and who has the fewest resources. And all of that are is uh, um, are real circumstances. There are a number of external circumstances that we are facing as a profession. Mm-hmm. But as I've continued to impress upon my staff and, and my team overall, is that despite the circumstances that we are in response to and the chaos that has resulted, we still have agents. So where do we need to deploy our time and energy that's going to result in the, the greatest effort? And we're gonna to have to do that. We can't do it in a silo. It has to be right. done within a community. Right. What we decide in housing and residence life has implications for the Dean of Students Office. It has implications for public safety. It has implications for um, community standards and civility. Uh, the counseling center mm-hmm. and and vice versa. So it is to our it, it's in our best interest. It would behoove us to make sure that we are building relationships and mm-hmm. that we're all at the table and sitting through the discomfort because there will be some discomfort. Mm-hmm. There will be moments of impasse. But I also believe those moments of impasse have been tremendous lessons for us as well yeah. because it's forced us to stop and to really truly interrogate what are the circumstances that's creating the impasse and how do we collectively navigate it to be better, to be more informed, to be more collaborative in our approach and understanding yeah. of the work. And how do we think about this as a whole system solution yes. rather than these micro And, and rather than it, it being on the, you know, again, falling on the most beleaguered staff. So we're right. the ones that are doing all the work and no one else right. is doing anything. No, we all are. It may be manifesting differently, but we all are impacted the, by, by the work. And so it would be to our advantage to understand that and now collectively work towards solutions. Very, very, very wise. Kate, what have you and your team been learning? You said you've been doing this for, for two years. What did you, what do you know now that you wish you would have known back then? Um, I, I think I've focused on a couple of things here. First, from a, an approach, maybe um, sort of a, a mindset and a developmental approach. And I, I think what I'm about to say compliments and doesn't contradict Steve Um and I was perhaps reminded of this and didn't learn it, but the categorization of what, a, what is considered a crisis seems to be individual. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. Um, if a crisis is simply a time of intense difficulty or difficult, different folks are going to set the line about what is a crisis or not in a different place. And um, people are going to um, have different reactions to that and and sort of well I don't think this is a crisis I do I would think this is a crisis for example when we started the work that eventually led to the creation of the incident response team we were hearing from RAs that simply being on duty was stress inducing because the duty phone would ring and they would never know what what was coming Um, from their perspective it could be a lockout it could be a student mental health issue and they were always just expecting the worst and so on heightened edge because of that so that's one side of the spectrum on the other side of the spectrum when i'm hearing um, about this i've been on an on on call rotation of some variety since 1997 (laughs) <laughs> and so, and now in addition to being on call, I'm, I'm always on call. I regularly get calls from staff who are on call who want to consult mm-hmm. on situations. And I, I also get the calls when a situation is especially dire. So mm-hmm. either through experience or exposure or personality, um, I don't get stressed out by this. And so my understanding of the RA's report of that stress 
was difficult to get to, right? Because it wasn't yeah. my experience. Mm -hmm. And so my Empathy. understanding was different. Yeah. And so I think it was a, a good reminder of how we hear things and approach things and how our different experiences inform what our response is going to be. So my experience and um, how I approach things can't discount others' experience. And, and this was important for all of us to sort of uh, grapple with as we were having having these conceptual and planning discussions. Um, operationally, it's it's been interesting to sort of think about what it means to have um, almost a completely separate and rarely overlapping daytime and nighttime team in the context of total team development. Um, when we when we do things, um, staff recognition, training, all staff meetings, we have to think about, okay, so we are geared towards a team that is primarily daytime. Um, and, and now we have to be mindful of how we also incorporate the, the team that is not during the day and what that looks like. And there have been other sort of logistical sorts of things that we had to consider. Like, for example, we bank most of our bank holidays to be closed the last week of December, but our residence halls are open. And so the IRT had to work. How do we fulfill our obligations to them to give them their time off? And how does that impact the schedule? You mentioned shift work. The IRT is in this unique situation where they have scheduled 10-hour shifts. So they, they follow sort of, we based our schedule on sort of the thought of a nursing schedule. So they have 10-hour workdays but they are salaried employees. And so they're sort of in this amorphous area between um, having what we term as a shift, but also they are not hourly, hour, hourly wage employees. And so um, that's an interesting question when a crisis goes past 3 a.m., when they start something and they stay late. And um, staying late when it gets to 4 a.m., that's, that's really, really late. Mm -hmm. um, and then something that Steve had mentioned, this notion of unlearning what we do, it's for us, it was both unlearning what we do, but being patient with others as they unlearn. Our, we have campus safety officers who have um, worked at a post in a residence hall for 20 some odd years. And so their go-to is to call the RA. And so mm -hmm. it took a lot of unlearning to um, fight that muscle memory and embrace mm -hmm. this new model of calling someone else mm -hmm. and, and recognizing that it was going to take a little bit of time and patience and reminding so that folks could begin to um, incorporate a new way of doing things in, in their longstanding practice. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Victor, what have uh, you and your team learned? You said you've been doing this for a year and a half. What, what do you think about as you look back? Um, I think what I'd, just to build on some of um, you know what Kate was saying earlier that I think would be helpful is we were talking about like credentials you know for these very similar kinds of roles that Kate's describing and what we have at Con and you know we've started out with the credentials of expecting somebody to have a master's in counseling or in social work um, and that was very in intentional in terms of what we wanted people to be able to do um, in these roles. It was also designed in a way that we wanted to something else Kate was saying earlier about continuity of care 
we made sure that these positions were not confidential positions, um, even though they're trained in jobs that lead to confidential professional roles. Mm-hmm. These were intentionally designed to not be confidential because we wanted information I mean, private, but we want the information to flow back to the care team. We want information to flow back to the folks who are working um, during during the day. But a challenge that I think we're facing moving forward, particularly in the current employment climate, is can we keep filling these positions moving forward? Um, I anticipate that this is a kind of job that folks are going to be in for you know probably two years, um, and then they're going to rotate out. Um, we have an opening right now, so if anybody's interested, let <laughs> me know. Um, but uh, you know, keeping these positions filled is going to be mm-hmm. you know really critical and could be challenging, which may lead us to think about the credentials a, a, a bit differently in order to you know open you know open it up and get more candidates. Yeah, great. Well, I want to move to our next couple of questions pretty quickly and then open it up and bring some of our UMass folks in. Um, I'd love to just hear from each of you, what are some new possibilities you're beginning to ideate or wish you could explore more fully in your campus context? Um, Every campus context has limitations, whether it's New York City or the size of Conn College or the mission uh, of University of Dayton. What are some things that you think if, if you were in a different context, you'd be really excited um, just to quickly throw out some, maybe some possibilities that aren't in what you're currently doing. Kate, anything come to mind for you? Um, well, there are certainly some big operational things that I'm focused on, but from a, a, a crisis related mm-hmm. thought project that I'm giving attention to is how we consume various sort of streams of data and establish key indicators to help us spot trends or, or give us early warnings. So for example, mm-hmm. we have, uh, we have, access to data about the number of incidents and the number of students we sent to the hospital following alcohol intoxication and the number of calls that are are being routed to the IRT and the calls that are being routed to the duty staff after hours, um, community activity amongst students and other things. But um, these are all sort of snapshots in isolation and silos. And I think a bigger picture would be a lot more robust to help us get a sense of the total experience and also help us talk about talk to others about trends. Like I was sitting next to a, a colleague who oversees our global operation and he mentioned he was seeing something on a campus and I I said, I'm seeing that too. And what do we know about that? And so mm-hmm. being able to um, get a picture of of what's happening by um, being able to to digest many of these streams to, in data together, I, it's something that I is really yeah. exciting to me. And right, I yeah, know exactly how to do it. Yeah, how do we take all this reactive data and inform more proactive approaches? I think that really excites me too. Victor, what are some possibilities that you are ideating around? Actually, you no, know, very similar to what Kate was just talking about. Like, how do we take the information that we have across this campus? And, you know, from a you know, retention standpoint, from a student support standpoint, provide the most effective kind of support structure for students. Um, and in particular, the amount of information that's in the experience that students have with faculty mm-hmm. um, and really capturing what faculty know about students um, in a way that allows us to use that in a, in a, in a responsive and proactive way 
um, so that it doesn't become a crisis down the road. Um, right. And harnessing that information is just not always the easiest thing because you know it's difficult to tell faculty what to do um, <laughs> and uh, to engage them with you know software systems that they're not familiar with using on a regular you know on a regular uh, you know period of time. So. We're working very close with the dean of the college on on figuring out strategies in which to make inroads on that. Yeah, great, great. Steve, what are some possibilities you'd like to explore? Um, I think, again, being a member of the dean of student staff and recognizing that the work in that office has significant implications for housing and residents' life. Um, I think increasing the outreach efforts from the dean of student um, uh, staff. I think the community sees the dean of students office as sort of, again, the, the ER. So someone is upset, someone is, is, is in, in, real, in, in crisis, and a lot of folks are uncomfortable in between. Um, the dean of students office can manage. And some of what we get are, I'm uncomfortable talking to a student, so can you talk to them <laughs> for me, regardless of the content? So how do we position the dean of students office so that the university has a more um, accurate understanding of its vision, role, and where it fits within the larger fabric of the institution and, mm -hmm. and of the institution's landscape? Um, I think we also see crisis only at the intervention stage, and there are lots of stages that uh, precede uh, the intervention stage. That allows for all of us to share the responsibility for being a partner in students' um, experience, particularly as they are encountering the various challenges and difficulties they will naturally encounter mm -hmm. in the four to five years that they're here. Um, that I think a lot of, I think we still see ourselves in very bifurcated ways and in, in very siloed ways and in, in our constructions of our institutions mm -hmm. show that. But I think our students' lives are not as compartmentalized as our infrastructure illustrates. And so topics that are showing up outside of the classroom are showing up in the inside. And so how do we prepare the community um, yeah. to, to understand um, their role responsibility in a way that makes sense for the, their their understanding and comfort level with crisis. Mm -hmm. Well, and some of these crises, particularly when they're at lower levels, can be wonderful learning opportunities, right? Mm -hmm. The natural difficulties and challenges and discomfort, as Kate points out, that's really different from person to person. Um, and, and then sometimes um, they're so overwhelming that they're not a learning opportunity and we have to manage harm and safety uh, for that person and, and for others. Well, we want to move to wrapping this up. Uh, we call this podcast Student Affairs Now. We always like to end with asking you what's on your mind. What are you troubling, thinking, or pondering now? And if folks want to be in touch with you, maybe how can they do that? So Steve, what's what are you troubling now? Um, well, the continued departure of staff um, who I, I think have, have, have recognized that this may not be the most um, healthy environment um, or profession to work in. And that that pains me because I, I, I truly enjoy being a part of being a student affairs practitioner. I enjoy the work that I have, have done, but I also can understand why people are leaving. Mm -hmm. And so do we have the patience as an institution to, to and the willingness to sit in our discomfort to, to create a more sustainable future? Or are we gonna still continue to try to repurpose a dysfunctional past that's no longer, never was perhaps serving us Mm -hmm. Well, it's easy to cling to what we know rather than to sit in the discomfort of what we don't know to be who we aspire to be. And can we collectively as an institution do that and do it well? Yeah. 
I, I love that human beings to go to what we're familiar with, even when it mm-hmm. doesn't serve us. And uh, you've pointed to unlearning and, you know, Adam Grant in his book, Think Again, talks about the, the key to rethinking is mm-hmm. curiosity and unlearning, right? How do we be mm-hmm. curious about what we don't know and how do we unlearn some of what we do know? Uh, Victor, what's troubling you now? I would say like specific to our, our campus, um, you know, we, those of you who are not familiar with our campus, we're just right outside of a small city of, of New London, um, up on a hill, kind of in an enclosed campus. And we've experienced, um, you know, some enrollment growth, you know, recently, um, and, you know, planning on maintaining some of that growth moving forward, which means that we don't have sufficient housing on campus. And our, our, beginning to initiate on these this goal that we've had for many, many years at the college and in the city of New London to have students living downtown in the city. Um, so this past year, we are you know leasing a building downtown, so it's about two miles from our campus. So it's creating the, these two experiences, you know, this residential experience on campus with this residential experience in the city, and they're very different. Um, and students living in the city are experiencing things that one experiences living in a city, um, and managing those expectations and managing those, you know, circumstances, and how do we keep kind of building on this movement into downtown, um, which is good for the city of New London. I think it's good for the college and for our students, while managing risk um, and the potential for various crises that can, you know, come about when you have students living at a distance. That on a campus that's been so centered historically on being here. You know, I know, Kate, you were talking about having, you know, students living all over, you know, New York and in a variety of different places. But when you have a campus, it's really just been one way for 100 plus years. And we start to shift away from that. How do you do that successfully and bring everybody along in that process? Right. And Kate, what are you troubling now? I think maybe this is a um, another point of view to what Steve led with this notion of um, departure of staff. Um, I think we're seeing, or I'm seeing the effects of a a colleague of mine framed it as a broken pipeline or it's a a gap of experience or institutional knowledge, which is happening at at both the professional staff and the the resident assistant level. All of our RAs are are juniors and seniors. So students that RAs are RAs this year um, likely experienced an, an interrupted year when we had to shut down our campus, or if they were RAs, if they were first year students um, following that, they experienced a very different first year at NYU. So we we can't assume that they've had an experience or have experienced some of our foundational activities. And then they might not have the experience to inform their approach as an RA because they wouldn't have done a, a based conversation, mm-hmm. for example, with an RA, which is a, a guided conversation with all the students so that they haven't been on the receiving end of some of these very um, foundational things that we do. And, and similarly, most of our staff, our professional staff, didn't work here prior to 2020. So while this is exciting and certainly accelerates this notion of unlearning and um, provides a lot of opportunities to curiously consider why we do things and how we do things, um, but we also also need to remind ourselves that most of the team has never seen um, an opening weekend or a mid-year turnover, so mm-hmm. that a lot of times we have to get into the weeds on things mm-hmm. and really start at, at the building block level 
and uh, reestablish a language of how we talk about things and how we painted the experience and and focus on the details um, rather than the big picture, making assumptions about what people have done in the past. And so I, I think that a lot of a lot of the effort is going into a rebuilding. And so I'm spending a lot of my time focusing on on what that looks like for um, our professional staff and how that then pours into the student um, RA and the student experience. Awesome. Well, thank you to all three of you for sharing what you're doing and helping us, again, break out of what we're familiar with, break out of what we know, break out of uh, what we did or what has been done and think about things a little bit differently. Thanks to the University of Massachusetts Amherst Residential Life for hosting today's conversation and to our sponsors for today's episode, LeaderShape and Stylus. LeaderShape partners with colleges and universities to create transformational leadership experiences, both virtual and in-person, for students and professionals, with a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world. LeaderShape offers engaging learning experiences on courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community, build community building. To find out more, please visit leadershape.org slash virtual programs or connect with them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And Stylus is proud to be a sponsor of the podcast. Browse their student affairs, diversity, and professional development titles at styluspub.com. Use promo code SA now for 30% off all books plus free shipping. You can also find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Stylus Pub. Huge shout out to our producer, Nan Ambrosi, who does all of the behind the scenes work to make us look and sound good. If you're not, if you're listening today and not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at studentaffairsnow.com. Scroll to the bottom of the homepage to add your email to our MailChimp list. While you're there, check out the archives. I'm Keith Edwards. Thanks again to the fabulous guests today and to everyone who's watching and listening. Make it a great week.